The Word of God is constant, even as generations of its preachers come and go. Today, on the Moody Church Hour, we continue the final series by its longtime pastor, Erwin Lutzer. From Chicago, this is the Moody Church Hour, a weekly service of worship and teaching with Pastor Erwin Lutzer. Today, we bring you the fourth in a six-part series of messages on the topic, Leaving a Legacy. Stay with us as Pastor Lutzer tells us to engage the culture. Pastor Lutzer, why is engaging the culture an important theme of your ministry? Dave, I think it's so important that Christians not live in a bubble. You know, there's a world that is swirling around us, a very needy world, a world that needs the gospel, a world that is being torn by the issues politically, racially, morally. We know the whole story. So Christians have to ask themselves this question. How do I interact with the world at the same time sharing the gospel with the world? And that's why I think that this kind of cultural engagement is so critical. Now, a personal word. This is actually the last series of messages I preached as senior pastor of the Moody Church way back in 2016. But it's time for us to transfer the preaching of this program it's time to transfer it to the new pastor, Pastor Philip Miller. What you're going to discover is that he is biblical, relational. I believe that you are going to be greatly blessed, and I encourage you to continue to listen to the Moody Church Hour. But at the same time, I want to emphasize that I will still have the privilege of speaking on Running to Win, Monday through Friday, and of course, you can continue to listen on our website, on our app, by radio, and other platforms. So even as we transfer the ministry of the Moody Church Hour to the new pastor, always remember that the ministry of Running to Win will continue. I want to thank the many of you who have blessed us, and I trust that our media ministry continues to bless you. But now it is my privilege to go to the pulpit of the Moody Church and speak on the very important topic of engaging the culture.
And our Father, today we thank you in the name of Jesus that we can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, because we are in your hands. For that, Father God, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Martin Luther is a man in whom I have had more than just a passing interest, and he was a man of courage. When they wanted to get him to recant, I realized he also was a man with many faults, but when they tried to get him to recant, he said, if I had a thousand heads, I would give them for what I believe. And he began and planted the seeds of freedom of religion in Europe. Wow. Today, actually, I'm going to be speaking about freedom of religion from a different point of view. I appreciate if you would pray for me because it is a very controversial subject, and today we're going to wade into some controversy. Let's pray. Father, we come to you because our needs are great, but we realize that there are people in the world whose needs are even greater. We think today of the church worldwide. We think, Father, of those who are facing persecution and even death and harassment. Oh, Father, make your church strong, I pray. Oh, God, we pray that the glory of God would be seen among your people everywhere. We thank you today, Father, for this congregation. And we know that among us are many needs. Some are financial. Some are health issues. Some are relational issues of the breakdown of marriage or wayward children. Today, Father, we call on you. For those who do not know Christ as Savior, we pray that you might overcome their reticence, their misunderstanding, their their misplaced faith in themselves, and show them the need for the gospel. I pray as I speak on sensitive issues today that I might do so with brokenness and love and compassion, but also a desire to help us think through the future. Lord, we pray today that you might be exalted at the Moody Church, not just today, but in the days to come for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
My topic today is engaging the culture. I need to begin by saying that here at the Moody Church, our doors are as wide open as the city of Chicago. If you're here today, we welcome you no matter what religion you belong to, no matter struggles that you may have regarding sexual attraction. We believe that all people should be definitely treated with a sense of dignity and importance. We welcome you here. But at the same time, we do not accept everything that is coming down the pike in terms of culture. And so I'm speaking this message today for two reasons. First of all, because I'm thinking about the church of the future and issues that will need to be addressed, certainly not only in the next generation, but this generation. Western civilization is actually unraveling, and darkness has descended on the land, and unless something radically changes, it's going to get darker. There's a second reason why I speak this way, and that is that I want to assure the congregation that no matter what is up ahead, God is going to walk with us through it. In other words, Jesus does not abandon his church. And if you look at church history, you'll discover that people have been here before. Not these specific issues. Our specific issues are new in church history. But the idea of persecution, misunderstanding, and the pressure of culture has been with the church since its founding. We have a course here at the Moody Church on Christ and Culture taught by Pastor Steve Mason. And in it, he begins with creation 
He talks about the fact that the original intent is that man would rule the world but in dependence upon God, and so man would make the invisible world visible, that is to say, the invisible God visible by his commitment to rule under God's good hand. But sin and rebellion messed all that up, and so what you have is man thoroughly sinful but still belonging and still created in the image of God and therefore a mixture of good and evil. So the same person who can do good things can also do evil things. And certainly there are people, Solzhenitsyn said, if there were bad people and good people in the world, we just put all the bad people in one place and all the good people in the other. But he said the line between good and evil does not run between races or boundaries, but through every human heart. And so man, after the fall, began culture. I'm using the term today very broadly to refer to everything that is happening basically in society, all of man's achievements. But the first part of culture actually was music. You find there in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis, after man fell, it talks about using the lyre, I hope I pronounced that correctly, and the pipe, musicians began. One of the first things that culture developed because culture can develop some very, very good things and how thankful we are for music. And then after that, utensils. It says items of bronze and so forth. From now on, man is going to be inventing things, and um, even those that are good are going to eventually be used for evil. We think, for example, of the Internet. We are so appreciative of this modern invention that we can use, thankfully, even though we do not understand how it works. But at the same time, the Internet is being used for gross evil in terms of people being sucked into all kinds of evil and often demonic websites. And that's the way it's going to be. Now, in addition to the development of this kind of culture, you have man developing government because he had to restrain evil. Because from now on, man is going to have three drives, passion, we could say pleasure, he is going to have possessions, and he's going to want power. So government restrains all that. This past week I gave a lecture on the history of religious freedom in Europe because the government oftentimes has been, what shall we say, limiting human freedom, certainly religious freedom, all throughout Europe's history until about 1648. And then I studied America and its uniqueness the fact that uh, we would not have a state church as they had in Europe. And uh, as a result of that, Congress will make no law that will make a state church, and it will encourage religion, but it will not demand it. And people are free to believe or not believe whatever they might like to believe or not believe. A unique experiment. We here who are Americans have always believed that there would be freedom of religion, that Churches would have jurisdiction over their territory, whom they hire, whom they fire. All of this would be ours. And now that is being eroded seriously in our culture. Let me begin by talking about such a thing. Uh, some of our politicians are now talking about freedom of worship, not freedom of religion. There is a difference between freedom of religion and freedom of worship. You see, freedom of worship, there is a bishop by the name of Bishop Warduni, 
W-A-R-D-U-N-I, who is in Iraq, a Catholic bishop. And he came to America and he spoke to American bishops and he said this. He said, in Iraq today, we do have freedom of worship. We can go into the church, we can close the doors, we can worship whichever God we want, but when we come out, we cannot practice our faith. So we have freedom of worship in Iraq, but not freedom of religion. He said, we cannot display crosses, we cannot carry a Bible, we cannot talk to others about our faith. If someone converts to Christianity, it is illegal, and they'll probably be put to death. But we have freedom of worship, yeah. Reminds me, you know, of course, that because of the Bible's condemnation of homosexuality, the tremendous struggle of religious freedom and uh, homosexual rights. You all know about that struggle. Well, what's very interesting, I've seen people on the news say things like this, oh, there will always be freedom of religion in America, freedom of worship. The time will never come when a pastor is going to be forced to do a same-sex wedding. Well, I agree with that. I can't imagine a time when a pastor is forced to marry anyone. But that isn't freedom of religion. I mean, when the bill was first passed here in Illinois, which I reread part of this past week, it said explicitly that as far as protection is concerned, it would be for the pastor and uh, for other people who maybe serve in leadership. But if you have a secretary, for example, who wants to marry a, her same-sex lover and you were to terminate her, you'd have a lawsuit. That was clarified. And, and regarding facilities, if you, if you rent them out to others, you have to rent them out to same-sex couples. Well, uh, I thought that the churches are supposed to make their own decisions. That was the understanding that most of us had. And today, freedom of religion is being severely attacked and compromised. I've told you many times that in 1984, when Rebecca and I were in the People's Republic of China, we had a tour guide, and we asked her about freedom of religion in China. And she said, oh, yes, we have freedom of religion in China. She said, people can be as religious as they want to be within their own minds. In other words, we have not yet found a way to control the human mind, so we have freedom of worship. I mean, if you go home and quietly in your bedroom worship God, I mean, there isn't much we can do about that. So you can worship whomever you like. But don't you dare live out your faith. Now, in America, there are today those who would like to criminalize all public expressions of Christianity. It's very difficult for some of us to see how a crash in a town square somehow is a threat to the First Amendment, but that's what has happened in society. So you have that change. You also have another that I want to broach. And by the way, of course, we're going to get to the Bible, but you have to hang on for a while. I have to paint the landscape before we turn to Scripture. And that is what I have come to call, I've coined the phrase, legislation by vilification. How do you like that? Legislation by vilification. And this goes back to Saul Alinsky, who wrote the book, you know, Rules for Radicals, which I read many years ago, who, by the way, dedicated his book to Lucifer, the first radical. But what he basically is telling people is you have to position your opponent, and of course, the more you can vilify him, the better it is for you. Let me give you an example. Back in 2015, 
Mike Pence, who is the uh, governor of Indiana, he signed a religious freedom law. It was really a crumb thrown to religious freedom. It, it said nothing about discrimination. It was just making it clear that the government should not put an undue burden on people when it comes to practicing their religion. Well, you know what happened. Everybody began to scream and holler, sometimes literally, about how terrible this was and how discriminatory and how it was going to be used for evil to discriminate and nobody has the right to discriminate and on and on. I remember an athlete saying, well, we don't even know if it's safe to go to Indiana for a basketball game. And all of these remarks, day after day, over the media, always speaking about how evil it was, even though I'm sure most of the people of Indiana were in favor of the law, until if you holler enough and call people enough bad names, bigoted, hate speech, angry, and on and on, eventually you win the argument. And we're living at a time when you can hardly have a discussion about these matters without being labeled and vilified. I'll tell you, the future is going to be very, very interesting. Eric Walsh was a doctor in California, highly regarded. He went through all of the vetting processes to be a director in the Atlanta area. They hired him, and then a few days after he left California and resigned his job there, they withdrew his invitation because somebody discovered some sermons he had preached and he was in favor of natural marriage only and um, opposed to same-sex marriage, and that pretty well took care of him. Dr. Paul Church was fired, not because he was a bad doctor, but he thought that a hospital should not be supporting LGBT parades, etc., because he thinks that same-sex marriage is bad for health. Well, instead of arguing the point and having a discussion, is it bad for your health or isn't it, fire him. That's the answer. I want to ask you something. What if the time comes when you cannot get a job anywhere unless you are asked specifically, can you celebrate same-sex marriage? That, indeed, may come. If you are committed to natural marriage and not unnatural marriage, that's where this is going. And, you know, I looked at some of the fines that were levied to those who uh, refused to help those who were involved in uh, wanting to have a cake for a wedding and so forth. One was $130,000, the other $140,000. Why such outrageous fines? What they are saying is, we're going to shut you down. And the way in which we do it is that. That's the way totalitarian regimes always do it. And I could give you some examples, but... Some of you might not like the examples I give. Now, there's another group that is indeed protected. And by the way, regarding the bathroom controversy, let me say this. We are not insensitive to some of the issues that arise regarding those who struggle with uh, sexual identity. And sometimes, in specific instances, they may not know or we may not know exactly how to handle the bathroom question, we're sensitive to that. But the idea that a man who says, I identify as a woman, can go into, well, you probably read it. I hope you did. I hope you keep up on it. Where a man did that, undressed in a girl's dressing room, 
wouldn't leave because, after all, the law in his city gave him permission. But once again, we see this tremendous outpouring of vilification against anyone who suggests that, as a law, it's a bad idea. Let me go, uh, now that I've hopped into the deep end of the pool, I might as well continue to swim. And there's one other issue, and then we do get to the Scripture. We are getting there. And that is the protective aura around Islam in society. Not only because we could give you many instances in which those who belong to the Islamic faith are having very special uh, times of um, accommodation. So before I go further, let me say this, that if you are here today as a Muslim, you not only are welcome because we want to get to know you, to connect with you, and we do not blame you for the terrorism that is often done in the name of your religion. So we accept you, and we want to connect with you. But I'm just speaking generally. The OIC, the Organization of Islamic Communities, has wanted to get a resolution through the United Nations that would make all criticism of Islam a crime. You have to understand all throughout the Middle East countries where you have a purer form of Islam, Christians are dying not because they said anything bad about Muhammad, but because they're Christians, because to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh is an insult to the prophet, and it is uh, you become an enemy of Islam. One of our... uh, politicians is quoted as saying this, we cannot in America here stop people criticizing Islam, but we can shame them into silence. So people today are shamed into silence. That's why you have words like Islamophobia. There's so much more I could say about this, or racism, or bigotry, or all of these things. We shame people into silence. And I say we ought to have some honest discussion with Muslims and with others and and discuss some of the texts in the Quran without being shamed. But that's not where our nation is today. Now, I mention this because these are issues that the Church of Jesus Christ, and there are others, are going to have to face going forward. What I want you to do is to take your Bibles and let's turn for a moment to 1 Peter. Now, 1 Peter was written to people who were under persecution. This past year, Rebecca and I were actually in some of these places like Cappadocia, Pontius, and um, other places, Bithynia. We were actually there. If you open to 1 Peter chapter 1, you notice that the people... The different places are listed, and I am truly amazed, absolutely amazed at the amount of persecution that people went through under the Roman Empire in the early centuries of the church. Wish I could tell you more about that. So Peter is writing to people who know what persecution is, what it is like to have a government that says that if you do not worship Caesar— If you do not give your pinch of incense to him, you could be put to death, and many of them were. I want you to notice now how Peter asks and invites the Christians to behave in the midst of a situation like this. By the way, before I get there, there are three ways that the church could react 
to what's happening in society. One is to try to dominate. <laughs> that hasn't worked. Clearly, we have lost the culture war. That's very obvious. To isolate, hey, why don't we all just go to Montana, buy 20 acres of land on a hill, get a cow, plant a garden, get some chickens, take care of our family, and then just wait for the end of the world. That, that could be pretty appealing, but it would be very wrong-headed. A ship in the harbor is probably safe, but it was meant to sail. So what God wants from us is contact without contamination. And I'll tell you, that's very difficult. That's why the next message in this series is on protecting our homes and protecting our children from the contamination of our culture. Hugely important. Well, first, uh, Peter, you'll notice that Peter says this, we should have a witness in society, and uh, first of all, by what we say. But before I get to first Peter, here's a verse that just jumped out of the text at me this past week. This is Psalm 94, verse 16. Who rises up for me against the wicked? God is asking the question. Who stands up for me against evildoers? And now the psalmist, David, is commenting. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence which is where many evangelical churches live today, in the land of silence. And I say from my heart to yours as an older man, the church is going to run out of places where it can hide. First Peter, let me give you now what I would like to call three different ways in which we should be confronting our culture. We should definitely take a stand. But it says, and and draw a line in the sand, but in verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil. There you go. You're called various names. You don't call people names in return. You don't render evil for evil. When David was being sought by Saul, and Saul took a spear and threw it at David, and uh, it pinned against the wall. David didn't pull it out and say, oh, you think you can throw a spear? Just watch this. Boom. No. You do not react. Notice, no evil for evil, no reviling for reviling. You're reviled. Oh, you bigot. Why don't you keep your bigotry to yourself? Why are you so homophobic or Islamophobic? All those things. You don't, you don't reply that way. I have so much to say, not too much time to say it in, so let's summarize. We approach it all with humility and brokenness, well aware of our own sins and failings and the tremendous need that we have for God's grace that we extend to others. And so what we do is we do it that way. We pray. You know, it says, God, verse 12, his ears are open to their prayers. We call on God when we have a day of prayer and fasting. We all show up because we believe in prayer and we believe in humility. And what a difference our response should be. When we were in France, uh, I don't know, two years ago or so, 
Michael Rydelnik, who is with us, gave this illustration. He said, we should never see people who disagree with us on the issues, say, that I have just mentioned, as our enemies. They may see us as enemies, but we should not see them as enemies. And he gave this example. When Americans and the British came to Normandy, they were not after the French. They didn't uh, say that the French are our enemies and we're invading France. No, we're invading France because France is under occupation. We have to see this world under occupation. John says that the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. We have to know and see beyond the people with whom we are dealing and to be loving and, and strong and encouraging and humble and broken. If there's anything that turns people off, it is finger-wagging Christians who like to judge culture. Now, we're judging culture. We're not wagging fingers. We are entreating. That's what Paul says. He says, when we are maligned, we entreat. That's number one. By the attitude we adopt, by the things we say. Now I'm in verse 13 and following. It says that... um, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. I'm in verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense of anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so it is, of course, a defense, first of all, of the gospel. Why do we believe on Jesus? That's why we have classes here that are really classes designed to help us and to disciple us so that we at least have some answers. We don't need all the answers, but, but we should have answers as to why we believe the gospel, but also answers as to why we take the stand we do. I have to say that actually all the good arguments are on our side, legally, historically, from the standpoint of natural law. And um, oftentimes when we are confronted with a person one-on-one. It's best not to do it in a group where you feel that you have to always uh, identify with others in the group and to talk to people to help them understand our position. You know, it says this in the uh, book of Acts, chapter 10. It says, and Peter opened his mouth and spoke to them. Isn't that odd? He opened his mouth and spoke to them. Well, obviously, since his speech is given... He had to open his mouth. (laughs) Why does Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, include that? Peter opened his mouth. That's what people do when they are defending the gospel and sharing the gospel and representing Christ in a very broken world. They open their mouth. And I believe that the evangelical church today is waiting for some people to open their mouths on issues that we need to be aware of and teaching the church how to confront them. So I think, first of all, by our words, by our attitudes, confessing self-righteousness, always recognizing that Jesus is Lord. He saved us, and we sure don't deserve it. We offer his forgiveness, his grace to others, 
with an attitude of personal concern. All right, by the words we speak and then by how we suffer. Verse 12 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Some time ago, a few years ago, there was an article in the Journal of Orthopsychiatry analyzing intolerance. It says the authors explore the possibility of an intolerant personality disorder and they list their racism, homophobia, etc., and its symptoms, and suggest some possible treatment considerations. The intolerant personality disorder. What if that becomes a classification in psychiatry? And what if the belief is that all those who believe in natural marriage only are intolerant and unfit to raise children because... They have an intolerant personality disorder, and so the Child Protective Services come and take your child. You say, oh, that is really bizarre. Now you're getting out there. Yes, it is now. But there are other things happening that are very bizarre that we wouldn't have believed 10 years ago. How would you accept the fiery trial that comes upon you? Why would God allow this fiery trial? Well, to test you, says there in the text. I believe that a day is coming when God is going to throw onto the sieve the evangelical community and the chaff and the wheat are going to be separated when times really become hard and when your convictions really cost something. Well, let's read further. Don't be surprised because, you see, a secular state is always going to gobble up freedom of religion. That's been proven throughout history. So the more secular we become, the fewer freedoms we'll have. Don't pretend that some strange thing is happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings. Is that in the Bible? I thought we should be mad. Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. God is saying, I want you to have faith so that when I come, you honor me with your faith. And that's the purpose of trials. You know, Bonhoeffer said, we'll never suffer well as a church unless we realize that suffering is a gift from God. And it says that explicitly in Philippians chapter 1. It says... For unto you it is given on behalf of Christ to believe on him. We say, yeah, 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 we believe on him. And to suffer for his name's sake. It's a gift. And and God wants to bring himself some glory when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, that's easy to have happen today because of the present environment. For the name of Christ, you are blessed Because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Remember this now. You are going to be receiving enough grace to endure successfully. Why? So that you might bring glory to God at the return of Jesus Christ. 
But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Mm -mm, Don't suffer that way. But if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Oh, you say, but they're making all these remarks about me. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now verse 19. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while they are doing good. We're going to have to go places we've never been before. We've never really had this happen, but... Who knows what form it will take in the future? And I pour out my heart to you today. I hope nothing that I said was too harsh or too condemning, but I am a minister of the gospel, and we're confronting a culture that is very different than many of us grew up with. You may be here today, and you've never received Christ as your Savior, and you say, well, where's the gospel here? Well, right there in the suffering of Jesus, Jesus suffered for us, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. And no matter where you are, no matter what your feeling is, no matter where you are on the spectrum of sexual identity, everyone is welcome to come to a Savior who actually saves people and forgives them and reconciles them to God and saves them from their sins, and we offer him to you today. I have to end with a story based on verse 18 that I've probably told you before. Remember this, at my age, sometimes we begin to repeat ourselves. On the other hand, God may want you to remember this story, and you've already forgotten it, and you need to hear it again. (laughs) When John Huss was taken to the stake in Constance in 1415, the official Christendom said, We commit your soul to the devil. He was taken there because he was preaching the gospel. He was opposed to indulgences and believed that faith in Christ was the way to heaven. And he was taken from Prague. He actually went to the council because the emperor Sigismund said, I'm giving you safe passage. But when he got there, Sigismund said he didn't have to keep his word to heretics. So Hus was put in a castle. And there he wrote some beautiful letters. But then as he goes to the place where he is to be burned... We commit your soul to the devil, into the hands of the devil. He says, I commit my soul to the hand of God. And he died saying, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. Probably I've said a lot today that you're going to forget, but I sure don't want you to forget this bottom line. It's not necessary for us to win in this life in order to win in the life to come. Right? Huss didn't win in this life. I have to tell you the rest of the story. Before he died, according to one of the witnesses, he said this, you can cook this goose because in Czech, 
Hus and goose are the same word. And today we still use the expression, don't we? Cooked is goose. That's where it comes from. But he said, you can cook this goose, but in a hundred years a swan will arise. One hundred and two years later, Luther nails his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, and Luther believed that he was the fulfillment of Huss's prophecy. Be that as it may, you know what God does? One person dies at the stake, somebody else picks it up, because at the end of the day, the church of Jesus Christ prevails, and will you remember, congregation? We're on the winning side. We're on the winning side. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, we ask in Jesus' name only one thing today. May we be faithful no matter what comes our way. Help us to love you, and we pray that our faith may bring you glory when you are revealed. Amen. On today's Moody Church Hour, Pastor Lutzer brought the fourth of six messages on leaving a legacy. Each of us was encouraged to engage the culture. On these special broadcasts, we're hearing Pastor Lutzer's final series as the senior pastor of the Moody Church. He's covering the crucial issues that represent his ministry and the challenges that lie ahead. Next week, join us as Pastor Lutzer tells us to protect your family. This 2016 Capstone series can be yours as a book, which includes the sermon transcripts and study guide, or as a six-part CD series. Either is waiting for you is our way of saying thanks for your gift of any amount to the Moody Church Hour. Just call us at 1-800-215-5001. Ask about leaving a legacy when you call 1-800-215-5001. Or you can write to us at Moody Church Media, 1635 North LaSalle Boulevard, Chicago, Illinois, 60614. Online, go to moodyoffer.com. That's moodyoffer.com. For many decades, the Moody Church Hour has aired each week with messages from the senior pastor of the Moody Church. Since becoming pastor emeritus in 2016, Pastor Lutzer continues to write and speak as well as broadcast on the daily program, Running to Win. Plan to be listening February 18, when Pastor Lutzer introduces the new senior pastor of Moody Church as the next teacher on this weekly program. Join us next week for another Moody Church Hour with the Congregation of Historic Moody Church in Chicago. This broadcast is a ministry of the Moody Church.